Lord, your word is such a sweet, sweet thing in our hearts and in our mouth. Lord, help it to be a deep thing in our hearts. Something that, um, Lord, we continue, continue to plumb deeper and deeper as you open it up more and more to us. And I just pray, Lord, for a heart that's diligent to seek you and let all the things of this world, Lord, just be moved out of the way so that your glory can shine through greater and greater in our hearts. We ask you to open the word to us so that we might understand it better, that we might delight in it more to your glory. Amen. <clears throat> well, the kind of words that come to mind for so many people when you're talking about the book of Revelation, words like confusing, controversial, troubling, and terrifying, among others. And that's what comes to mind for so many people. Probably why they avoid the book, the book of Revelation as much as they do. But that's not what God intends for anyone. His purpose, of course, is to reveal and not to conceal and to encourage and not to cause distress. Right from the very beginning, blessing is promised to the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. It's a prophecy. And it's the one that reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And those who hear and who keep what's written in it. So you get a blessing from reading it. You get a blessing from hearing it. But only if you keep what it says. If you embrace what it says and not walk away from it. That's in the third verse of the first chapter. The first century churches that received revelation would have had one leader stand up and read the scroll aloud while everyone listened. The hearers grasped the message and they received the blessing of promises simply by hearing it read and embracing its truth. And that never changed. We're the same way. We can hear it read and embrace its truth. To receive this blessing, we ought to know two things, or excuse me, three things about Revelation. One, Revelation unveils the triumph of the Lamb in a world that's gone mad, berserk, unhinged. It's an unveiling that's needed for us to see through the surface appearances of our history and current events in order to see the core reality that lies behind them and reveal the source. So we're seeing behind the scenes when God takes the veil off our eyes and we see what's really going on to cause all the chaos in this world that's gone berserk. If we, if we only see the superficial symptoms, famine, the horrors of war, economic collapse, 
disease, and death, we will never be able to discern why our world seems to have lost its mooring to anything stable. And that's the way it appears to so many today, with good reason. But we'll lose sight of what's behind all of this. But only seeing, even briefly, behind the veil, into the spiritual realm, where God is sovereign over all things, where he's battling the great dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, then you begin to make sense of all the miseries and mysteries that surround us. This book is a revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's a revelation of Jesus Christ in two senses. Jesus is the one who unveils, and he's the one who is unveiled. He's the one who unveils because gave, God gave this revelation to Jesus. The first chapter says that God gave it to Jesus, who gave it to his angel, who gave it to John. That's the sequence. And he gave it to Jesus to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Jesus receives the, the scroll, or excuse me, Jesus receives from the Father a scroll and breaks the seals in chapters 4 and 5. He alone, the Lamb alone, is worthy to reveal and execute God's program since he has, he's the only one that has triumphed by enduring a violent death to ransom a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Secondly, not only is Jesus the Lamb who triumphed through suffering for our redemption, he's also one like a son of man who walks among his churches on earth, assessing the spiritual health and blessing those who stand fast. Blessing those who stand fast. He's the offspring of the woman promised at the beginning of history. And he was threatened at his birth, or shortly after his birth, by Satan, through Herod, Jesus is the captain of heaven's armies and he's going to return and to destroy this dragon and all of his monstrous legions and everyone who believes their lies. Because the visions of Revelation show the horrible realities of sin's poisonous byproducts in a world gone crazy the scenes of chaos grab our attention. But if we fixate on the trees, meaning of human evil and the divine wrath that it provokes, if we focus on these trees, then we're going to miss Revelation's forest, the majesty and mercy 
of Jesus Christ. Revelation has a tendency to ignite controversy, of course. Even though Jesus warned against date setting, there are many, many streams of Christianity that still fight on over how John's vision lines up with the events of their day and time. Jesus' purpose, however, is to arm his church, which is under attack from the forces of evil, to stand fast. Revelation gives us a picture of Satan's strategies and steals us to resist his assaults. The church has often been deceived by false teachers. It's an ongoing thing, of course. Compromise with the world, again ongoing, and with complacency, ongoing. The seven churches in Asia were a sample of the churches throughout the ages. Satan's agents put on different disguises in different ages. And But regardless of the forms of attack, he's already defeated. Jesus, the triumphant Lamb of God, gave us this book to impart to us discernment, courage, and faithfulness to hold fast to his word as we see that day of his return approaching. I thought this was interesting. It says, Cyprian of Carthage was one of the most important leaders in the third century church, well known for his stress on the importance of the church and his refusal to give any one bishop in the early church higher authority than others. In commenting on the letters to the seven churches of Revelation, Cyprian says this about the Lord's call to repent. The Lord certainly would not exhort to repentance if it were not because he promises to pardon the penitent. This is an important principle to remember whenever we see a church or individual caught in sin. No matter how heinous the transgression, there is always hope for the penitent. Jesus will by no means refuse to forgive and restore anyone who comes to him in faith, turning away from sin. I think those are words that we all need to remember, not only because of our sin, but the way we view other people that sin. Repentance touches the heart of Jesus. Now, the fourth letter. We're going to take a chance. The fourth letter in the book of Revelation to the churches is to the church in Thyatira. So if we can, it could, let's read Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, 
and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with them, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The letter to the church in Thyatira has been labeled by some as the church of discernment without love because their fervent love for the Lord has cooled as well as their love for other people. The church at Thyatira, excuse me, church at Ephesus has been called the church of discernment without love. The church at Thyatira, on the other hand, has been called the church of love without discernment. city of Thyatira was the least known, the least important, and the least remarkable of the seven cities of Asia. And yet it's the longest letter of the seven. The city was located in the center of a broad valley, which made it an easy city to conquer and capture. And it had changed hands many times between the time the death of Alexander the Great and the rise of Rome. Thyatira possessed a few temples, but it was not a religious center or a political center. In addition, few Jews lived there, so they weren't around to torment the church. What the city was known for was its trade guilds that dominated the manufacturing and commerce and industries, with each trade guild having its own particular god or goddess. Archaeological 
remains show that the most dominant trades were metalworking and dyeing of fabric. One of the which dealt with purple cloth. One of these sellers of purple became a convert to Christianity through the Apostle Paul. Acts 16.14 reads, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And this took place in the city of Philippi. These trade guilds in Thyatira would have presented a problem for Christians since the guilds enjoyed common meals together that were probably dedicated to whichever pagan deity this particular guild served. And without belonging to a guild, it would be nearly impossible to find work. So the question arose as to whether a Christian could, could participate in such meals. Right. What exactly was a guild? Uh, it's like a trade union. A union. Yeah, it's, 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 it's you know, uh, if you're a metal worker or a, in fabrics or anything you can think of in commerce, whatever you had to belong to in order to get their blessing, in order to practice it or, or okay, sell it, or sense. yeah, makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. So further complicating the issue of belong or eating, whether or not to participate in these meals with the guild is the fact that the meals often ended in debauchery and sexual license and this sort of thing. So what was a Christian going to do? Face economic disaster while being faithful to Christ or compromise with the world and lose his faithful walk with the Lord? It's not an easy decision if you're thinking about supporting your family and you're locked out of the guild. Anyway, it's not just a one, two, three thing. It's going to take a commitment. Jesus identifies himself to this church as the Son of God, which is the only occurrence of this title in the book of Revelation. Jesus' burning holiness is revealed in eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like burnished bronze. This church needs to see the gaze of these burning eyes because they've turned away from their responsibility to discern and reject immorality. Both of these characteristics of the Lord suggest impending judgment which is spoken of in the next few verses. The church at Thyatira is strong in love and faith, of service and perseverance. It's strong where the Ephesian church is weak in love demonstrated in service. Where Ephesus needed to return to its first, first deeds, Thyatira had so grown in faith and love that its recent deeds were greater than the first. But, there's a but. 
the great flaw was a lack of discernment of putting the people to the test of truth. Jesus says, I love your love, but I hate your tolerance. Their tolerance is toward a woman called Jezebel. Not really her name, but she's called that for a reason. She teaches and leads the Lord's people astray. So they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And she doesn't want to repent. She's named Jezebel because she is luring the church into the same sins that Jezebel, the wife of Ahab in the Old Testament, worked in Israel centuries earlier. She married Ahab but brought her gods with her. And you see the prophets of Baal and all of this other thing because of Jezebel. She leads Israel into idolatry. This combination of sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols seems to suggest that these trade guild banquets where social and business practices were intermingled were held in honor of this guild deity. And not to participate meant risking losing social acceptance and economic loss. Listening to Jezebel would drive a wedge between God and his people. Because Jezebel would not repent, and because the people tolerated her and committed adultery with her, the Lord will cast her on a bed of sickness, and her lovers and the great tribulation unless they repent. Over and over again you get, unless you repent. Her spiritual children, those who are totally committed to her, are going to suffer death. Jesus will teach us a vital lesson to the church, and not to the church in Thyatira alone, but to all the churches. All of them are going to know that I am he who searches the minds and heart. The Lord doesn't change. This is exactly what he said to Judah in the book of Jeremiah. He said in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, test the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to the fruit of his deeds. Thyatira is insignificant. But Jesus is going to show all the churches that he does not tolerate undiscerning tolerance. He invites the serpent. This tolerating it invites the serpent's poison into the body of Christ. That ought to scare anybody. He tells those that have remained faithful that no other burden will be laid on them, but to remain faithful to what they have been taught, to hold fast to their Christian profession, to those who conquer and keep his works till the end, the Lord promises authority over the hostile nation, and they'll share in his rule over these nations. 
Jesus' rule is a gift bestowed on him by his Father by virtue of his sufferings, death, and resurrection. The overcomer will be given the morning star. In Revelation 22:16, Jesus identifies himself as the bright and morning star. And as Jesus is the hidden manna promised to the overcomers in Pergamon, so is he the morning star that will be given to the overcomers in Thyatira. So I think that if there's any message that stands out above all the rest in Thyatira is the fact of a lack of discernment and a lack of refusing to address the wickedness that permeates the church, then there is a drastic, drastic judgment coming. If you, do, if you tolerate the things that God hates, then that's a great sin. And it's a great disruption. It's not a great disruption, it's a great destruction for the church. So we all have to be diligent, remembering that repentance is always open. And if it's not embraced, then what's the church? Just a gathering of people for social work, I guess. So let's pray. Lord, I just pray that your words would come alive to us, that they would not be just words on a page, but they would be words that live in our heart and that would cause us to ponder and to seek out, Lord, all the hidden meanings, all the open meanings, so that we don't pretend not to know and that we do, in fact, know what's asked of us, what's commanded of us in order to walk with you according to the word until that day. In Jesus' name.